We're walking line by line through Ephesians, and I've been watching this iceberg kind of headed towards this for a while. We're talking tonight about submission, as Jeremy mentioned. Let's start here. We are starting in verse 15, and Paul's admonition is this. Be very careful, then, how you live. Remember, starting in chapter 4, and all the way through 5 and 6, Paul is beginning the perinesis. He's giving the ethical teaching that comes out of Ephesians. So he's repeating again, be careful then how you live. Why then? Why then? What is he talking about? He's kind of hearkening back to say, look, this is what we've been talking about this whole time. This is where we've been already. We've been looking at all the things that he's been admonishing the church to do, and I'm going to just list a couple of them. <laughs> he goes into more detail, but just in these two chapters, actually it's been a chapter and a half, He's given us these following kind of admonitions to be unified in the body, to no longer be infants, to be mature in our knowledge of Christ, to speak the truth in love, to no longer be futile in our thinking like the Gentiles. And by the way, he points that the reason that people are futile in their thinking about God, he points because they have hardened hearts. They've hardened their heart against God first, then they become darkened in their understanding, and then they become ignorant about God. It's kind of very interesting how he traces where our disbelief and our difficulties from God come from, that it comes from the heart, not from a struggle of the mind. He's told us to put off our old self, to put on the new, to put off falsehoods, not to sin in our anger, to resist idleness. He says, no unwholesome talk, but only that that builds up others, not even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed. No obscenity, no foolish talk, no coarse joking, but thanksgiving. And you'll see me come back to the theme of thanksgiving again tonight because Paul focuses on this word. So he's saying, when he says, be very careful then how you live, he's reminding us of everything that's come before, starting with verse 1 of chapter 4. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And these are all elements of that worthy life, worthy of Christ calling us to him, to be in him. And remember, Paul begins Ephesians by saying, if he hadn't called us, we could not even be in him. So you are in him. Live life worthy in that way. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity is a way of saying, making sure the time doesn't slip by. The actual literal rendering is redeeming the time, like buying the time back if you have to, or making sure that every moment counts. We've talked about this theme in here in this group before. The idea that many of us could actually sit and watch our life just go by. And he's saying, don't do that. Make the most of every opportunity. That's the way the NIV renders the redeem the time. Make sure that every moment counts because we live in this fallen and evil world. And there's, there's a lot for us to do about ourselves, about the body itself, and even with others that are around us. Don't slack off would be an easier way to say it. Don't slack off and just let time fly by while we're busy doing other things. It's not a busyness gospel, but at the same time, remember, Paul has repeatedly warned about idleness, as we've seen. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Anyone have a problem with any of these so far? Yes. 
understand what the Lord's will is, how that compares to foolish. Yeah, he's making a contrast here, as you'll see it a couple of ways. Like, don't be unwise, but wise, right? So he's making another one, like, don't be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. So by making that but comparison, what he's really saying is, like, it's the, to be wise is understanding what the Lord's will is, right? Come back. Well, yeah, but our whole series on the Lord's will, we sort of determined you can't understand it. Like, not that simple. I know there's some more complicated answers. You know, you the general moral will, but... And that's precisely what he's talking about. So to summarize what you're saying is that some people think they can discern God's will. This is not talking about you trying to figure out who you should marry, what college to go to, or where you should eat breakfast. That what the Lord's will is here, as Paul has repeatedly reminded us in other letters and even in Ephesians, is this is like following God's way and God's will, right? Like not in the, in the will for you, but just his general moral will and what he set up. So you could say like being foolish is not understanding who the Lord is and what he wants of us and what he expects of us. The person who is wise does understand what the Lord wants. And again, it's not an individual thing. It's really like, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord want of us? What is the Lord's will for the church, for his people? And that's the contrast that he's making. So I'm glad you brought that up because lots of people trip over that. And we actually analyzed this specific verse in our series on trying to discern the will of God and said, yes, it's misused a lot of times. People look at it and say, ah, don't be foolish. Figure out what God's will is. And they use that to say, so you'll just sit there with your Ouija board and figure it out before you make a move. And that's actually not the intended meaning at all. This has nothing to do with the individual will for your life, if you could even find that in scripture, which is rare. It's very hard to find that in scripture anywhere. What about this? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Debauchery, by the way, the actual word that it translates is almost like a wasted life. So what do you think? He's not saying don't drink, right? I mean, that's not in here. He's just saying don't get drunk. And that really connects right back to this idea of making the most of every opportunity and living this life, like making sure you live every moment. I don't think there's a way to do that if we're drunk. Yes? And the way it's written, it kind of says don't get drunk on wine because the being drunk on wine leads to debauchery. Can you also read that as the continuous drinking of wine or the continuous being drunk of wine, so being a drunkard, leads to debauchery? Well, first, he's saying there's a connection in his mind, right, to what we'll say is a wasted life. Okay, so you could actually just look at the thing saying do not get drunk on wine and stop there and say like that's part of it and it leads to debauchery. The interesting thing is for us the grammar looks like there's a period here but this is actually one of these but comparisons. Instead could be rendered as but. So what he's really saying is don't get drunk on wine instead be filled with the spirit. If you look at it the way the grammar is intended to be that's almost like a side thought, which yes, it doesn't lead to a wasted life, but he's, the, the real comparison is drunkenness versus being filled with the Spirit. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah? That just seems strange that there's some people doing that, like speaking to one another, songs and songs from the Spirit. Like, I, I, not that I just think, like, oh, 
it's, it's wrong. It's just like I, I've never been in any context where people speak to each other in songs or hymns. Like, I'm just going around, I'm like, let me like sing worship songs to you as we're walking down the street. Like, <laughs> well, first of all, your observation is you've never been around someone who does that, which is 2,100 years after this is like supposed to take place, right? Or give a few here and there. So the first inquiry has to be, is he actually meaning that this was going on when he's writing this, right? I mean, whether we adhere to what he's said is totally a different issue than whether he's saying we should do it. I mean, we may just ignore things and say, that's crazy, I'm not doing it. Let's step back for a moment, though, and see how he gets there. He actually says a lot about psalms, hymns, songs. I mean, look at sing, make music. So if you're a musician, this is kind of like one of your places. This is where you can camp out and say, all right, he's kind of talking about me and what I'm doing in this context, okay? This is the place where it can be done. So let's look at that for a moment. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit is actually coming out of being filled with the Spirit. So it's a result of being filled with the Spirit is that you will do these things. I think the question is, do they do those things is the first question. And it seems like all evidence is, yeah, we have lots of evidence even in the scriptures that Paul is citing from hymn fragments and spiritual songs that were written and choruses that were floating around the church early on. So from the beginnings of the church, whether this was going on in Judaism or not before the church, clearly what was happening in the church was there were quite a few of these hymns and psalms that were being recited. Now, whether they're actually being spoken to one another, like that's the only way we speak to one another, is probably overreading it. It's more of saying, look, this is the way we dialogue with one another. The way we are talking to one another is based out of these psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And even Paul, as he's writing the letter repeatedly in other letters as well, is citing and speaking to the people, reciting these things. A lot of times when we see, like, as, you have, as it has been said, or as you know, he's actually reciting a hymn fragment. So the early church repeated a lot of its doctrine through these psalms and its hymns, and they were confessional statements, but they were put to music. And that's really what makes probably a hymn is something that isn't quite good enough to be a song. No, I don't know what a hymn is, right? It's not quite good enough, but it has some spiritual words, so suddenly it becomes, we call it a hymn. Think about this, though, for a moment, about the tradition of music in the church. What is the purpose of us singing the songs that we sing? Even when we're sitting in here like singing and somebody is leading us in musical worship, what is the purpose of that? What's happening there? You know, one of the things that you could note from it is the words of these songs speak truth about God. That's one thing they do. While at the same time, we worship God in these songs. So I think that has stayed true throughout the centuries, is that still the basis of our music when it comes to these songs from the Spirit is that we are repeating truths about God to one another, by the way. I mean, when we sing a song, like we're singing to the PowerPoint, <laughs> you know, we're not really worshiping the PowerPoint, obviously. We're not worshiping the screen. We're not singing to the screen. We're getting words, whether they're in a book, whether you've memorized them, whether you see them on a screen. You're repeating things that have been written that we hope are all theologically correct that reinforce the truths we believe. And we sing them out loud 
in a way where we're singing them to one another and to God. It's an act of worship and it's an act of repetition of what we believe about God. And I don't know how often we think of worship in that way. That we see there's more than just kind of a one way like I'm worshiping you, which is definitely probably the highest order, but also reinforcing in one another what we believe about God and saying it out loud. I was just thinking about the strangeness of this compared to any other group I've been in. I mean, on Wednesday nights, when people come over to our house, we sit in a circle, right? We sing songs. Like, on Sunday nights, we sing songs. Like, it's not unusual to go to a church and have them just start with singing songs. In fact, it would be downright strange if we went to a Christian gathering of any kind of worship service and there was no singing. We would feel a little bit like something's missing. But think about any other context you're in, any other context where you're hanging out with your friends. How often do you sit around with your friends and just sing together? I mean, even if you love the music, it's your favorite artist, right? If you start singing the song, what's the first thing somebody says? Like, who sings that song? And you go, oh, you tell them. You go, let's keep it that way, right? Like, you're not supposed to sing in front of other people, right? There's this unwritten weirdness to singing in any other context, right? Imagine if you went to see one of Alyssa's shows and she's up there playing and all of a sudden people just got up and started singing with her. Like, even if you know every word, like, that's not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to actually just listen and maybe sing along. You want people to sing with you? I don't know. Maybe you would? That would be good? All right. So I think there's something that is part of the unity of the body that takes place when we join in song together. It's not an accident, I think, that many religious expressions end up incorporating music in some way, if not singing at the same time, because I think it brings people together. And I think that's one of the reasons he's pointing this out. Being filled with the Spirit and engaging in this way, in this musical expression to God, is unifying. Not only does it speak the truth about what we believe and also reflect our worship to God, but I think it unifies us, especially when he says, sing and make music from your heart, like from the depths of who you are, and you're doing it to the Lord, always giving thanks. What is that always giving thanks all about? Why does he keep coming back to thanks? A couple of weeks ago, I think it was Philip who said, like, why is he contrasting thanksgiving with obscenity, foolish speak, and coarse talking? Like, why is thanksgiving the thing we're supposed to do? This just comes from where Paul is. This is Paul's admonition. Paul thinks that thanksgiving is the way to remain in the right relationship with God, and the absence of thanks is the root of many sins. Now, you could come up with your own list of what you think the root of many sins are, but Paul seems to really think that if we were thankful, then we would actually avoid most of the sin that brings us down. Even if that includes something like you might think, well, I think pride is a big sin. Sure, but if you were thankful, it would be very difficult to be prideful. In Romans 1, 18 and 21, he actually expresses his view on thanksgiving. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Why? For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. That's his view. He has a strong belief in thanksgiving. That's why we've seen it in Ephesians, and it keeps coming back. That's why in this letter, by the way, you could describe the first three chapters as an extended thanksgiving to God. We referred to it as this long doxology where it goes on and on and on describing God's greatness and how thankful we should be. So that's the emphasis on thankfulness that he keeps coming back to. One last thing before we tumble forward. He commands that we be filled with the Spirit. How's that possible? 
I thought the Spirit kind of fills us upon conversion or belief. Uh, what, what control do we have over being filled with the Spirit? What's that about? Sing songs, sing yeah, So if we sing, the Spirit shows up, right? I mean, that's sort of what it says. Like, being filled with the Spirit means that's what you're doing. Yeah, there is a connection. I mean, the language looks like it connects it. But I think it's more like that's the result, not how to get it in the first place. Like when we're filled with the Spirit, like this will come pouring out is part of the way it's written. Not if we sing a lot of songs then we'll be more filled with the Holy Spirit. Although I can't say that's not true. But it doesn't look like it works that way as easily. How do you get, how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is he talking about, what, like a second baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is he talking about like manifesting tongues? What's he talking about here? Yeah. I think if you look back at don't drink or be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, you're... Someone had to go out and buy the bottle. Someone had to get glasses. Someone had to do things to make themselves drunk on wine. So there has to be something that you're doing to be drunk on the Spirit. So reading the scripture, um, going to missions, serving others, bringing your gifts to God. And there's those things that outpour, that show that you have the Spirit within you. Yeah, he's really focusing on being filled with a thing that characterizes you or dominates you in some way. Like if I said to you, be filled with joy, like where do you go get some joy to fill yourself up with? Like you can't, what can you do? What you're saying in a way is I choose to be joyful. Like I choose to, to let joy characterize me instead of sorrow or to see through the circumstance and to believe in God and have that lead to joy. Like I'm making an action to let joy dominate. And that's really what he's saying here about the spirit because we cannot control the spirit's movement. And this isn't like you can go somewhere and buy the spirit in bottles and drink it, right? It's so, even though the contrast is there between drunkenness and the spirit, he's setting them up. Really, what he's trying to say in some way, it's a very curious phrase, be filled with the spirit. It actually doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, a commandment for us to be filled with the spirit, as if we had some control over it. But to the degree we do, it's the same choice to let the Spirit fill us as opposed to all the other things that could fill up our own lives. Just like joy, just like any of those things where it's like if you were filled with something like that, you'd say, well, I'm ordering my life to allow that. Okay, so that's what that means. Again, we can run right over that and think, be filled with the Spirit, sure. Sounds like another flowery statement that Paul would make. I just don't want to make, you know, throw out little words like that because that's a pretty profound one that means that we have to spend time thinking instead of all those things, I'm going to choose to allow the Spirit to be the thing that characterizes me. And then, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence. Actually, a better word, the word that's actually used, is out of fear for Christ. The first thing I want to point out is even just using the word fear, a very, very interesting element of Christology right in this statement here. I mean, we don't see fear of Christ very often. It's always fear of the Lord, meaning God, the Father. Throughout the Old Testament, we have the fear of God, synonymous with the love of God, the deep reverence and respect, but fear just captures the word so much better. The fear of the Lord. And here, he's saying it's the fear of Christ. He's clearly making this identification. And if you've missed it already, look at all the places where we see the Spirit. And we see God the Father, and we see the Lord Jesus Christ all expressed together. By this point, as he's writing Ephesians, there is a very clear view of Christ 
and the Trinity in these passages, and especially a Christology that elevates Christ very far. So if many people date this even before the Gospels are actually written and being circulated, uh, you could already see that early on this idea of Christ being God is just stated matter-of-factly without any instruction needed. So we see that early on, just something for us to put in our minds as we always think that it's something they made up three centuries later. All right, submit to one another out of reverence. Let's see what you make of this. This one line is kind of the theme for the next few verses. All of the rest of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, is going to fall under submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But what I want to point out is it is not a new sentence or paragraph by itself just to hang out there. Many Bibles actually start a new paragraph there and leave it dangling. This is a connection to the entire sentence that we just saw. It's connected to the thought of living in the Spirit, living a certain way, living and watching how you live. And this is one more, and we'll give three examples. How we submit to one another as husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Those are the three examples he's going to move through. And so I think this is important enough. I'm going to kind of move it up here. And we're going to like use that as our head for the rest of our discussion. We're only going to take the first one tonight and see if we can wade into it. If you could sum up the gospel as love God and love others, then you could sum up Ephesians as you are in Christ and in each other. Or there is unity in Christ and you're, we're united with others. Or another way to say it, you are part of Christ, as you'll see in chapter 5, verse 30, and you are part of others, as he's just finished saying at the end of chapter 4. So you could sum up all of this as you are part of Christ and you are part of each other. And in the context of that, submitting to one another doesn't really sound that difficult because we are all members of Christ. We are part of Christ and part of each other. Easy to emphasize, very hard to understand and comprehend. But let's just start. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Yes. Oh my. <laughs> Something that I've been kind of thinking about, especially in regards to the first part of this, is that I think a lot of people think of this sentiment as you know, you've got two people on a level playing field, and in order to be following this edict, you're supposed to lower yourself to be underneath. But I believe that we are supposed to elevate the other and remain equal. It's not like, okay, I know I'm right, but I'm going to pretend like I am dumb and we'll just go along with what you say, which sounds crazy, but I have spoken with people, with wives who felt like, well, you know, the Bible says to follow him. It's like, oh, I know he's wrong. Like, it's for the best. How crazy is that? Okay. Yes. Just even the phrase of the, the last part of it, as you do to the Lord, uh, I feel like that needs clarification, especially because, like, there should be theoretically anywhere where everybody should be submitting to the Lord before as a higher priority than submitting to anyone else. Well, let's take that. What does that mean, as you do to the Lord? What does that phrase mean? So let's just say submit, as you do to the Lord. What does as you do to the Lord mean? 
understanding before, so before everything that like you already are submitting to the Lord? Okay, so it could mean that it presupposes you are submitting to the Lord, which is important. That's one, all right? It could mean also as part of your submission to the Lord, you are going to submit yourselves to your own husbands. I think what it doesn't mean, by the way, I don't think it means that you should submit to your husband as if he were the Lord. That is not in view here. And the reason it's not in view here is because that would contradict everything he's just been talking about. Okay, going this way. Jeremy. One thing that we haven't talked about, and maybe you are planning on talking about it, is the tense of the word. Because the tense of the word changes everything in, in terms of how you understand this particular word, right? Submit or to be subject to. And it's because the, the tense that's used here in Greek is a tense we don't use in English, which makes it very difficult to really understand here. And I, and I, and I think that's what potentially might trip us up. So we think of the word submit, and we think of this kind of like this active person who is forcing someone to submit, or the passive person who is the one submitting, right? We, we, we see it in that kind of role. But neither one of those is the tense that's used in the Greek here. It's actually a middle tense, which is much more complex. Because it's, it's the putting oneself in that place, regardless of your actual relationship, regardless of whether or not you were married, regardless of whether you were free or a slave, regardless of, right? And that's, I think, that's, what, that's what's going to trip us up. I think that's why the translators put the word submit yourselves first to try to grasp at how you can translate what you're trying to say. This is something where he's saying, to the individuals in the church, he's saying, submit to one another. This is a command to everyone. The first command is to everyone, not to wives. The first command is to all people who are in Christ. All of you submit to one another. I mean, no one's forcing you to submit. No one's subjugating you. This is saying all of you submit to one another. And by the way, that's way broader than wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. It's in every case. In other words, those three are examples. And we can talk about why he picks those three examples. But the greater point will remain that all of you submit to one another. This is not a strange concept, by the way, that Paul somehow comes up to it. I mean, this is where he and Christ are talking right off the same page. Like, who's the greatest among you? You must be servant of all. Like, don't seek for yourself the kind of honor. Don't sit at the head here, like sit over here, right? All those kinds of things. Like, he who wants to be the greatest must serve you. Like, he's the one who demonstrates this and repeatedly, as we saw in our series in Matthew, reminds the disciples of their place as servants to submit to one another, where Christ himself, as we know, comes to serve and submits to the will of his father. So I don't think it's unfair to bring it up. That'll help us understand as well. Uh, I was thinking about the submitting slash serving thing that you were even talking about. Like, uh, like the difference between submit and serve. Because even like you said, well, yeah, Christ came to serve, and we should all be serving each other. That makes sense to me. Um, but submitting, I, don't, I still don't think I understand what that means. Because so did Christ came to serve, but apparently he didn't come to submit himself because he put everything else underneath him. And he's the head of 
like as it should be. Like he's the head of the church. Like the church is underneath him. It's submitting to him. He's not submitting to him. Yet, like he came to serve. So like, I don't feel like those are necessarily synonymous. I might just be, hey, maybe he came while he was on earth to serve and submit, and then now he doesn't. Now everybody submits and serves him. He didn't put all things under his feet. The Father did, right? He submitted to the will of the Father. The Father responds by putting all things under his feet and glorifying him, which is going to be very similar to this kind of unique dance we see between husbands and wives. You'll see that in a moment. So first, I think that's exactly what's going on. That's, they share that nature in the triune nature that they have. And we've also in the past kind of looked at that, how cyclical that love becomes. And that's really what we're trying to get to is a unity and a love that binds the church the same way that God within God's self is unified and loves oneself. And the way that happens is not to get too complicated, but again, Christ says that I submit to the will of the Father and the Father in return glorifies and lifts up the Son and we'll see that sort of between husbands and wives. The same thing is going on. The second thing is to say that servanthood and submission are not the same word really misses the point that to serve someone you are basically giving up what you have to submit to them. That is servanthood. That is serving someone. I mean you could say well I serve you know but I'm not really submitting to them. That's not even what he's talking about. He's not talking about that type of service. He's not talking about volunteering. He's not talking about helping. He's talking about the one who loves is the one who would lay down his life for his friends type of service. Like the place where you say my life is totally submitted to lifting you up even if I have to lay down my life for you. That is love. And that's the kind of thing that I think we're seeing. So yes, if we're thinking of it in terms of like I could serve someone without submitting to them. I believe that's true. But that's not the service he's talking about. That's not what it means if you want to be the greatest, you must be the servant of all. Not like the guy who cleans up after everybody, but the guy who literally would lay down his life for the whole group, for the whole body. That's the kind of thing that I'm seeing, and that's the kind of submission that it has. Yes? Well, I think also in this case, you've got Jesus who during his life did submit to men and did submit to other people and serve in submission in that way. Um, you look at like the feet washing and things like that. He served them, but I don't know if that's um, submitting to them. Like he submitted. There's a very complicated thing going on here because he's going to make the case about submission while at the same time weaving in some very complicated theology. The theology is actually more complicated than what he's asking husbands and wives to do. That's what's going to trip us up. Paul is writing a very mature theology of Christ's relationship with the church in the midst of something that we get all freaked out over. And the hardest thing is to pull them apart a little bit and understand them both. Because even by itself, his theology about Christ's relationship to the church would leave us wondering, like un trying to scratch to understand it. Let's talk about what this would sound like to the people who are hearing it. One of the mistakes I think we make is that we think that culturally this statement is bound in the time in which it was spoken. Like before we start to get the temptation of like, well, can we really apply that today? Was this really just part of their patriarchal society? I think the thing we have to understand is this would probably be kind of surprising to them as well. Not this sentence by itself, 
But the fact that as we go through this passage, he's going to turn to address husbands. Or that while he's addressing children, he addresses parents. Or that while he's addressing slaves, he even addresses the masters. Because one half of that equation was routine. Some people refer to these as the house codes. It was not uncommon in the literature at the time to write ethical treatments of how wives and children and slaves were to behave. Paul here is actually doing the other half. He's bringing in something that nobody would have thought of and probably surprised most of his hearers. That husbands, for example, would love their wives. Husbands basically had the duty to provide food and shelter the family, and short of that, they could do anything they wanted. I mean, other than that, if they did those things, they could do anything they want. So to actually have an ethical treatment of the, the conduct of husbands, even to say that they had to love their wives and do some other things, which we'll talk about, is going to freak out his audience as much as this freaks out our audience. We've gotten so used to the idea of equality rather than this mutual submission and looking at each other in this way rather than in this relationship that we get freaked out by the first part. His readers would get freaked out by the second part, that it's even there. So I mean, for us to get tempted and say, well, this just applied to them. I'm not sure it applies anymore. I think for them, they'd say, I'm not sure this applies to us. This is kind of strange to our hearing, to hear you even give the other half of this equation. That's important for us to understand. There's something else going on here culturally that we have to understand. And that is that Paul is addressing an issue that has come up in the church because this gospel that he's been preaching has given people freedom to do what they want in a lot of ways. And the freedom is starting to be a little scandalous. The fact that he's actually, like there is in the church, women who are becoming more free from where they were in society is causing some difficulty. I'm going to skip ahead for a second to this verse in Titus 2.5. He explains in, in the letter to Titus, he says, talking about submission again, he says, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands. Why? In this case, why? He's explaining why they need this teaching so that no one will malign the word of God. He's actually indicating that there are people who are upset with the movement of the church because it's giving too much freedom and it's upsetting the societal norms of basically having the woman be silent, no credibility or testimony, be thought of as inferior, be thought of as, as, as not as intelligent, be of no value, be thought of in such ways that even to say love your wives would be scandalous, like what? I mean, they're the wife. I mean, they have a utility in life, and that's it. And they stay at home, and that's what they do for. And Paul was noticing in the church at the time that people outside were starting to point at Christianity, saying, you are giving too much freedom to women, giving too much value. You're pointing too much to them. And so he's actually saying, in some way, that there's a purpose there. And we need to know that only because we have to ask a little bit later, if that purpose doesn't exist today, are some of these words still valid? We have to at least ask the question. Maybe this maligning the word of God thing is not a problem in our society. Maybe women in the church today are not a little bit too free <laughs> compared to the rest of society. Maybe it's just the opposite. 
So maybe we have to at least know what was he saying and why, just to put that in the back of your mind. Jeremy. There are different perspectives on like those household code of conduct and who they were actually written for. And I think also, like the other thing that's kind of rattling in my mind right now is, is to which audience is Paul actually writing? You know, is, he, is he writing to a, a more Roman audience? Um, you know, in which case that really, you know, the, the kind of family structure um, and the mobility of women and men in, in Roman society, you know, was a little bit different than like a Jewish audience per se. In response to your question or your statement about is it different in a Roman audience versus a Jewish audience, we know he was writing to churches in Asia Minor. Which churches? Probably general churches. But all of the stuff that I looked at said that my characterization of the value of women is in those cultures. I wasn't talking about what he believed in Jewish households. Like we have this idea of the Romans being this like, you know, very, very, you know, elevated people who had all these notions. But you know what? Uh, that's just not true, especially not when you move out of the higher echelons. You know, like much of our knowledge of Roman society or our popular knowledge of Roman society resides in like the upper echelons of what the wealthy and the senators and the educated, but the vast Roman Empire did not share these views. They were a conquered people who kept many of the same exact views they had before. So as he's writing to these Christians, he's writing to a group of people who are Gentile Christians, first of all, and are living in a society where this stuff would be kind of scandalous for them to be admonishing husbands to love and to care for and those things which we'll get to. So I'm just kind of highlighting something we haven't seen. But let's go on. I think your suggestion is good. Let's look at the next verse. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Oh, <laughs> that look on your face, Jill, I love that. It's, like, it's kind of weird to me that, and I mean, we kind of mentioned it before, you have this kind of scale where on one side you have wives, children, slaves, and the other side you've got Christ, masters, parents seems to set up kind of a wide chasm in between of, you know, here's the side of the experience, the knowledge, the expertise, here's the side of powerlessness. And I think this verse kind of provokes the same situation where you have a husband being equated as like a savior or imbued with some kind of special powers that another human doesn't have. It seems kind of weird. Okay, uh, that's a very good point. First of all, you use two words in describing that difference, like the intelligence or the power, right? I don't think intelligence has anything to do with it, but I think you could rightly point out the power might. Like, so in the relationship of slaves and masters or parents and children, like nobody's kind of like looking just at the intelligence of it, but I think there is a definite difference in the power of it, right? At least in society. He's actually trying to reverse that in some way by creating this idea of mutual submission. All right, let's go back to your comparison or your statement about that you feel like the comparison is that the husband is the savior of the wife, right? I think that trips us up. I don't think that's intended in the language or the way we're supposed to understand it. He's actually saying that about Christ. And almost everyone that I looked at said, grammatically you cannot connect that to the husband yes there's an analogy being made so I, I understand that 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. But the of which he is a savior qualifies Christ's relation to the church, not the other way around. One of the reasons you could be confident in that is that would be crazy for Paul, after spending all this time in Ephesians, to then make a statement that somehow it's the husband that saves the wife. Well, I've never meant to say that a husband is physically saving the wife or anything. I'm just saying that this kind of analogy that's being set up has endured to our time. Like that there's some kind of um, some kind of quality about men where they need to be elevated just because they're men. Okay, Jeremy. I think we read head right, and we think of headship, lordship, ruler type, you know, leader. And that's not the actual Greek word here. There's a different Greek word for leader or ruler. That's not the word used here. So if, if there's any analogy here, the only analogy I think we have here is the previous analogy in Ephesians where it's talking about the relationship of the body, right? And, and, and so, we would, like I would say, like there's a, an analogous relationship between my head and my body, right? And my head isn't Lord isn't Lord over my body, right? They, they mutually work together, right? It, we wouldn't describe ourselves in that way. In the same way, I think the only analogy that we're really talking about here is the analogy of um, like this kind of, this analogous relationship between people, husbands and wives, whatever that, whatever that relationship looks like, and then in a larger sense to the body of Christ, right? Not an, an, an analogy of actual you know, a husband is the head of a wife in the sense that a husband has some kind of governorship over, over a wife. I, I don't think that's what, the language wouldn't support that. I don't think it would. I think you're right. I think we have to look at the word head. Um, the Greek word is kephale. Well, we can't read it as boss, right? Uh, master, director, manager, governor, like those kinds of things. The way we would read, like, he's the head of the company. Oh, yeah, we know what that means. He's the president, right? It doesn't operate quite that way. In fact, we've actually misused the word by claiming that the husband is the head of the house, right? Which, it doesn't say that. Because when you read head of the house, you start thinking of, right away, you start thinking of, well, that must mean he's the boss of the house, like he's the chief of the house, right? But first, house doesn't even appear. But I can't tell you how many Christians refer to the man as the head of the house. Right? Or the spiritual leader, which is nowhere found here. Okay? So we've substituted our own words trying to understand what head means. So this word head is used specifically in this case. He could have used a different word that would give that implication of boss or director, governor. But one of the things that's very interesting is the analogy is what causes us trouble. Because we know how Christ is the head of the church. He's not just a part of it. He's not just the head that needs a body. He could actually be the head without a body, and he was eternally before. So that analogy is what brings us back just a little bit, not as far as you were saying we should discount. I agree with that. But we can't just run away from it completely and go, well, it just means that the head and the body work together because the analogy is troubling. You could say, but so you, I mean, I, so granted, you could say that there's an issue between an, uh, uh, an understanding of the analogy as it relates between Christ and creation, or Christ and humanity. But I don't think, by extension, you could then say that there's some uh, special relationship of head headness to husband and wife. I and mean, I still think I, I understand the kind of difference you're making, right? That you would say that 
know, in some way, right, as a body, we submit to Christ. But you, I, I don't think it's too it's too far a stretch to say that in the same way, uh, husband and wife, because that's that's not the idea first that is upheld. But I'm not making the stretch. He uses the same word twice. It could be X, right? For the husband is the X of the wife, as Christ is the X of the church. This is simple algebra, Philip. <laughs> what we're trying to do here is figure out what is X. In this case, if we just zeroed in on the analogy he's making, it's true that the word head could trouble us normally. Is it, why is he use the, the Hebrew word rosh? Why is he use kafal? Like, what does it mean? Why is he use the other one? But in this case, he uses the same word twice. What we really need to understand is not the word head. What we need to understand is the relationship of husband and wife by understanding the relationship of Christ to the church. The variable is not head. That's a different analogy. That Christ and the church is not the same thing as a husband and wife. It's just, it just isn't. That's what the analogy is. I, no, I, I mean, I, 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 but that's what I'm saying. Like, it points to a different spiritual truth. I'm not trying to disagree with you. All I'm saying is the, the inquiry that he, Paul has set up for us to understand is the relationship of Christ to the church because according to Paul, that informs the relationship of husband to wife. And you could call it head, you could call it friends, you could call it any word you want. If he used the same word twice, what he's inviting us to do with an analogy is saying, as this is to that, then this is to that. I don't know what that is yet. We haven't even gotten there yet. People make a lot of the word head, and I read through it a lot, and I liked it. I wasn't even disagreeing with it. I was just saying, okay, but at the end of the day, the fact that he worded it, his sentence in such a way causes us to go, yes, that's true. He could have used boss and governor and all these other words, so he clearly doesn't mean that. But to understand what he does mean, we have to really think about what the relationship of Christ is to the church because he set it up that way. This is what I'm going to do. I mean, I had no illusion thinking that we were going to finish this tonight, right? I, I mean, I really didn't. I mean, you know, I didn't even try parents and children or any of that. I, I was hoping we would get through this slide, okay, which we aren't through. But I'd like to just point out a couple things and close because we're going to, I feel like we need to really sit under this passage for a couple of weeks uh, because we all know about it. And as Philip one time pointed out, when we see things in Scripture we don't like, we just go, ah, I don't like that. We just don't do them. It happens to us. I mean, we say, we, we say that we're troubled by something, but for the most part, maybe we're not really troubled. We just ignore them. And I'd like to do something more than that. I'd like to be troubled by them for longer and then see if it produces something in us. Let's just do this. I'm just going to read a little bit longer, not analyze, just read the next couple verses, and point out a couple things, and just leave it there. So let me close this way. The reason this analogy becomes even more layered is because he repeats it in a slightly different way. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The analogy is stated twice. We need to understand not only as how is Christ the head of the church, we need to understand how the church submits to Christ. We need that understanding. So there's the thing we're looking for. But the part that would have been really strange for his hearers to hear is this part. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, 
After all, no one hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect or in the Greek, actually, the wife must fear her husband. Just leave it at that. That's where we're going to go. We've got to sort out a bunch of things between now and next week, especially trying to understand that analogy. Because if we want to follow what Paul is saying to us, we have to first understand what he's saying. And second of all, ask, is this still applicable to us? Are we going to find any reason to disqualify this or is it still applicable and if so how do we follow that let me pray and close up Lord we need your understanding you say to us that if any of us lacks understanding or wisdom that if we pray that you would give it to us and Lord I'm confident that one of the ways in my life that you have given understanding and wisdom is in the dialogue and the tension that rises up in this room every time we study your word. Lord, I've sat through many sermons on this topic. I've listened to people say whatever they wanted to without people being able to really wrestle and live in the tension that comes between the place that you plant your word and the place that we actually live. So Lord, I'm thankful that you use this forum to produce truth. In the friction, you produce not just heat, but also light. And I pray, Lord, that we ask on behalf of all who are here that you would give us understanding and then the courage to be disciplined and be obedient so that we could say we truly love you in obedience and discipline. I pray this in your name. Amen.